All right. Today we are going to be in two different parts of Scripture, Genesis 22 and Acts 17. So if you want to go to those two different locations, where we're going to hang out here today. Now we are wrapping up a series in Acts, and we have moved through the series. We're only getting to chapter 17. There's more in the book of Acts that we are just not going to be able to get to. And I encourage you, if you've not done so already, to read on. But we've talked about what does it mean to be a church, and a church that is really sent to the ends of the earth. Uh, So we want to be a people of presence. We want to be a people of generosity, a people suffering, a people of change, and a people of the Spirit. And I encourage you, if you have uh, the desire to go back and to read through these different, or to listen through uh, these different sermons the last number of weeks. And last week, we talked about a people of the Spirit. And I encourage us to consider the Holy Spirit. Simon the sorcerer that we read about in Acts, he was one who tried to buy the Spirit because he wanted to use the Spirit for his good, his benefit. And we so often try to gain the Spirit so that we can have whatever it is we need. Um, Even if they're really good things, we can often try to do that versus being empowered by the Spirit. Are we empowered by the Spirit of God? And today is Pentecost Sunday. Not only is it Memorial Day weekend where we pause and we remember those who've laid down their life for our country, today is Pentecost Sunday where it's really the birthday of the church. Today is the birthday of the church. Happy birthday, church. Wow, that was about as exciting as the first service's response. Yeah, it is the birthday of the church. It's like, woo, right? There we go. There we go. Thank you. Some energy. It's the empowering of the Spirit of God. Last week, if you remember, at the end of service, I said, you know what? We as Christians, we, we have a certain, um, uh, I, I called us something. I, I put a word in front of Christians. You remember what I called us? Constipated Christians, that's right. Yep. And uh, we kind of get all backed up with fleshly things. And we have the Spirit of God as followers, and the Spirit is, is wanting to just burst out of us and fulfill all these sorts of fruits in our life, but we have this fleshly stuff that backs up, and we're constipated, we're grumpy, right? You know, we don't have the joy all the time. We need this breakthrough, and this is the Spirit of God breaking through. And so what we want to do is we want to continue on with the Spirit of God, thinking this Pentecost Sunday of what is unfolding in the church in Acts as we look in two different passages of Scripture. And today, what does it mean to be a people of resurrection? Now, this past, or earlier this week on Thursday and Friday, I went to Mackinac with uh, 200 plus fourth graders and parents, and some of you were there as well. And what I noticed is that there's a little bit of energy, right? Get around that many fourth graders. And something that would happen every once in a while, whether we were on the bus or the ferry or just walking around, is a kid would bust into song. He would just start singing out a song. And then they would start singing other songs, uh, much to the dismay of some adults who were standing around. Uh, But there's just this singing that would go on. It was contagious. And it's kind of like if I started saying something like, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had... Yes, yes. For some of you who have never heard that song, you're thinking, I was right, they are a cult. (laughs) 
Yeah, so there's this song, Father Abraham, that kids sing, and you go through this whole progression of right arm, and you sing it again, and left arm, and right foot, and by the end, you're doing something like this, right? It's, I, I, there's not much of a point, and it's about this deep theologically uh, with that song. But it's about Abraham, and Abraham is an essential figure in the scripture, an essential figure in world religion. He, three different monotheistic, meaning one God religions, point back to Abraham. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all point back to Abraham. In Abraham, there's a story in chapter 12 where we see that he is called by God to be a great nation and a great people. And he says, hey, I want you to leave your homeland. Now, when I think of his homeland, which is Ur, I would often think of tents in a small village. Maybe you're like me. Very wrong thought. There's about a quarter million people who lived in Ur in Abraham's day. There was architects and engineers. There was medical, uh, medical technology. You can, there's an artist rendering of what the city may have looked like. There are all sorts of groundbreaking realities in the city that Abraham was called from, to be a new people, to start a new life. And, and I would think of these, these tents, but these are very... Um, modern buildings of the time and, and even very impressive structures here. One of the places there is a, a tower called the Ziggurat, which is about 150 feet tall. This would be something that would stand out in front of all the people. And at the bottom of the temple, there would be, or at the bottom of this base, there would be two temples where two different gods would be worshipped. At the very top, the principal deity of Ur named Nana, not your grandma, Nana, he was the, he was the, um, the God of moon and wisdom. And he was that principal deity of Ur. And this God was worshipped along with probably thousands of other gods in the city and the region long before Abraham came along. And the belief was is that you want to make the God Nana and the other ones at the base and the other ones scattered around the city happy. Because if they're happy, then you're happy. So Abraham grew up in this world and all the people around him grew up in this world. And then there's this different God named Yahweh who calls him to leave this land and to become a new nation and a new people who would follow this God. And his descendants would be beyond count. 25 years pass before he has Isaac, his son, where this nation would come from. And so Abraham continues to seek and follow and, and try to make this God happy just like all the other people trying to make other gods happy. But then there's a story that comes in Genesis 22, which is a really disturbing story. Let's look at this passage here in Genesis 22. It says this, Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. So maybe you've heard this story before and this is just a numb passage to you. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time as all of us should again and say, what in the world? Right, that's, that's a good healthy response. This God is saying, hey, take your son and go offer him as an offering. And Abraham in this culture would know of other gods, maybe like Molech, who demanded child sacrifice. So this God made a promise to him, even though he's supposed to be this different God. He made this promise about a great nation, and now he's saying, you need to go sacrifice your son. 
Abraham's thinking, well, I gotta keep them happy. So this is what I have to do. So verse three continues this way. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he sent out for a place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw a place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went down together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, or to his father, Abraham Father? Like, right? At this point he's like, uh, Dad. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This is a very good and healthy question. All right, so Isaac's getting a little nervous. Like, uh, we've got all this stuff, but we don't have something or someone to offer. And verse eight, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. We're gonna pause the story right there. This is a barbaric, violent story in scripture. This God who is supposed to be different, who's called him out of all the other gods, is now saying, hey, I want you to do the same thing you've seen done before. But why does this God ask? And why does Abraham say, okay, let's do it? Well, we're gonna pause this and come back to it in a little bit. But I want us to fast forward 2,000 years to Acts 17. You can turn over to Acts 17. In 2,000 years, we, I'm sure, have come along further in the narrative of how people see gods and interact with gods. And we see that Paul, sent out by the church at Antioch, has arrived in Athens. And he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come there. And so while he's waiting, he decides to do some sightseeing. Verse 16 of Acts 17 says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace day by day with those that happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul, when he arrived in Athens, he would have had an experience where he would have immediately seen the temple of Demeter, the goddess of harvest. He would have passed the statue of Poseidon, the, the god of sea and water. He would have walked past the gymnasium of Ptolemy, and inside the gymnasium was a, uh, a statue of Hermes, the god of flocks and herds and shepherds. He would have walked past the temple of Zeus, the god of sky and thunder. Walked past the sanctuary of Dionysus, the, um, of, of winemaking, orchards, fruit, vegetation, fertility, festivity, insanity, and theater. That god was very busy. On the western edge, would have walked past the temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and military victory. 
There's an ancient proverb that talked about that there was more gods in Athens than there were people. Because everywhere you looked, you saw a statue or a temple or wherever it was in a courtyard of a house or in a home or in the temple itself, there was something that someone was worshiping and going after. And the recognized gods and goddesses of that day, they had temples, places that people would go where the god or goddess would be contained. And and that's where you met with that god. That's where you offered whatever it was. There were festival days and festival weeks. These gods had needs that needed to be met. You lost a war? Well, Athena's upset. You had a poor harvest? What did you do to upset Demeter? Whatever you had to do to keep the gods happy, you did it. But here's the tricky thing. Is when you start trying to make gods happy, how do you know when they're happy? How do you know when you've done enough? Because say you win a war and you've made an offering before that war, that was enough. But next time you have a war, maybe you should offer a little bit more just to make sure that the gods are still pleased with you. Or maybe you lost a war and so you say, I didn't do enough, so I have to give more this time. And there's never this point where you're like, it is enough. There's always more you can give or sacrifice. So you would give crops and animals. People would cut themselves, giving their own blood or body parts to these gods, saying, look at me, this is my sacrifice. This has to be enough. I hope this is enough. Even gods demanded their first children. Sorry, Aubrey. I never, you never know where you stand with the powers that be. They're not happy with me. So we have this going on and on since the beginning of time of, of appeasing these gods. And Paul steps into this cultural moment in Acts 17, starting in verse nine, or 19. Continuing on there, I should say. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aragopolis, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopolis and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your, uh, your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant, this is not an insult, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm gonna proclaim to you. Now a couple things that are unfolding there. Paul takes an opportunity where he's at to bridge into culture. He didn't just demonize everyone and shoot everyone down and say they're horrible. He took this opportunity to bridge into it. He's looking around and he's connecting with what they already believe. There's a gap between them and what Paul is teaching. And so how does he bridge that gap? He says, you are very religious. He doesn't insult them. He doesn't tell them how foolish they are. He said, I see that you're really religious. You're you're seeking something. You're going for something. That ache, that want, that hole that you're just trying to fill with sacrifice and worship to these gods. Let me tell you about it. This unknown God, let me tell you about this unknown God. Because I want you to know what I'm proclaiming. I want you to know this God. Verse 24, 
said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So he's saying like, these buildings, we don't need this to worship the God I'm telling you about. Verse 25 says, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Unlike the other gods who required festivals and all the sacrifice to be motivated and moved to do whatever it is that humans needed, while saying you don't need to do those things to please this God. And in fact, sacrifice is radically different to this God that I'm telling you about. In Hosea 6.6, 6, it says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So he's saying, instead of these sacrifices that you're bringing, these burnt offerings, I want mercy. Acknowledgement of God, that God is supreme, that God is ruler. In Psalm 51, it says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart for you, you, God, will not despise. So again, he's saying, I don't need the sacrifice. I don't need the burnt offerings. What I want is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. I'm saying, I'm not gonna despise that. It is this humbling reality of coming before the Lord and just being broken before him. Seeing that I've tried and tried and tried and tried and I've put forward effort and I've done all these different things that are sacrifices trying to make you happy, but God, I just need you. Spirit of God, fill me. Use me, send me out. There's my broken heart. Here's this broken spirit. You're not gonna despise this. You may despise all this effort that I put forth trying to make you happy. You don't need that. You don't want that. You want my heart. And as Paul continued in verse 25, he said, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Because all good and perfect gifts come from the Father above. He gives himself away. He gives us life and breath and everything else. He's the one that provides. Not about us obtaining, but about us receiving from him. Saying this God is not angry. You don't have to appease this God. We belong to him. And then Paul frames it in with a creation story. It says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So God roots himself in the creation story because he is creator. Paul talks about how God himself incarnates in Jesus, God becoming human in Jesus, fully God, fully man. And he said, you may search for God, but he can't get any closer because he, he is here, the Holy Spirit, who indwells, who fills those who seek after him. And I love how Paul said, as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. We are made in the image of God. 
Verse 29, he continues by saying, therefore, since all these things are true, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So he's saying all those things that humans create, all these statues, all the temples, that's not what or who God is. God is far beyond that. Verse 30 says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And now's the time to turn, to turn to Jesus. The word repent that Paul uses there is the word metaneo, which means to change one mind or purpose, to change one's mind or purpose. So when you change your mind or your purpose, if you are sacrificing, if you are doing things on your own, if you're trying to be right before God, you're changing your mind and purpose to focus on him and to receive from him. Or if you're walking in sin, there's a reordering of your life. You're no longer thinking sinful ways or acting out in sinful ways. You have turned, you've repented. And the outflow and the reordering of your life is different. Verse 31 says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. That's Jesus. And he has given proof to this by everyone, by raising, excuse me, proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, we're not judged by some deity far away that we continue to appease. Rather, it's what Jesus did on the cross, not what we do. It's about Jesus' sacrifice, not about our sacrifice. It's about Jesus' suffering, not about my suffering. Jesus is the one that brings about the justice. He's the one who is risen from the dead. And resurrection changes everything. Resurrection is unique to Christianity. That the God did not just exist, but the, the God died and resurrected. There's a unique reality to this. Verse 31 says, when they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So this should make you feel better. If you're thinking about your one, if you're thinking about someone that you have ever tried to share the good news with and they've not responded, Paul had the same experience. But also notice that there are some who said, tell me more. I want to hear more of what you're talking about. Paul bridged, using cultural realities, bridged in, and there was a future conversation. But Jesus' resurrection, which Paul points to, said is the game changer, because it ends our attempt to be right, make things right through blood sacrifice that we make, whether it's our own blood or whether it's some sort of animal blood. 1 Peter 3 says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That Jesus, he was the final sacrifice for your sin, for my sin. But he didn't just stay dead. He arose. This changes everything. Now briefly, back to Genesis 22. We paused that narrative. Go back there briefly. We left Isaac bound on an altar. Abraham standing there with a knife and ready to light a fire. Disturbing story. Abraham did this because the gods would demand what is most precious to you. 
In Genesis 22, verse 10, it says, Then he, Abraham, reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now often at this point, if you've been in a church, you would hear someone maybe say something like this, that Abraham did what was right, he followed God's direction, and then now God was happy with him, and that's why he didn't have to slay his son. But that's the same pattern as every other God. Once again, you're just trying to make the gods happy, trying to appease them. There's something else that unfolds in this passage in Genesis 22. God's showing himself to be faithful, to be a different type of God. He's the one who provides. God doesn't ask Abraham to make the sacrifice or Isaac to be the sacrifice. Rather, God provides the sacrifice for them. Look at verse 13. Abraham looked up and there were in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. See, God, in that moment, he provided that ram when it should have been Isaac in any other story about any other God. The Lord will provide. This is what God is showing, to be a different kind of God, a God who provides in the place of what we try to do to make him happy. The story is somewhere around 4,000 years old. And we would think that, again, we would have learned from this narrative and maybe even Paul's narrative in Athens but still today, we find ourselves trying to make the gods of our current day happy. We create altars around us, and we sacrifice on these altars. Maybe for you, it's work. One more project, and then I'm done. Just this last email, and then I'm done. I'm going to sacrifice today so that tomorrow is better. Or maybe for you, it's some sort of eating or health or diet or whatever. It's like, I'm just going to work hard now and then do this another time. I'm going to sacrifice this here. Or maybe it's some sort of consumerism of, I'm just going to buy this one last thing and this will be all the debt we have and, and then we'll start paying this off. I'm going to sacrifice here. Or maybe it's, you like the praise of other people. I don't really feel that God's calling me to do this or say this or be here or whatever it may be but I love the praise of people. And so I'm just gonna do this now. And then it's gonna be better later. Or any level of self-destructive behaviors. We build altars and we still sacrifice to gods. They may not be gold or silver or stone, but we are surrounded by gods. And we do these things hoping that they will provide for us, they will bring peace in our world, and that will be okay. 
We just have to do enough to make that right God happy. There has to be another way. There has to be. At the same time, Paul is working on a letter to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 12, he says this. He says, I urge you. Paul's like, please listen to what I'm going to say. I saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters. He's appealing. He's saying we're connected. In view of God's mercy, what God has done, his merciful love, his merciful action. So what I want you to do, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. It's not about death. It says, this is your true and proper worship. It says, here I am, Lord, send me. It's Isaiah concept. Here I am, send me. Here I am, use me. God, it's another day. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness yesterday, today. Spirit of God, fill me today. Lord, maybe I be a person who overflows with your spirit when I love this person that's hard to love. When I walk in joy, when I feel like the world is crumbling, when I'm patient, when all I want to do is yell. Here, I'm a living sacrifice. Use me. Not because I'm trying to earn your favor, but because you love me and because of your mercy. Not because I have to do anything, but to receive your love. In verse 2, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform to all that all the other gods around us and all the other expectations call us to do, to bow down to, to sacrifice to. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. How do you think? It's the Spirit of God filling us, but how do we think? What are we thinking about? What is our mind drawn to? When you stop and take a breath, what does your mind go to? What is that thing you feel like you have to do, you have to accomplish? That expectation of whoever it may be. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, with this renewing of the mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. I love this passage because we so often just say, I wish I knew what God's will would be. There's a situation, I wish I knew. Well, Paul is saying, hey, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve. Saying, Spirit of God, what is it in this situation that God has? And his will is good and pleasing and perfect. When we're not worshiping in all the different idols around us, when we're not seeking to make everything right and whole and perfect, we say, God, use me and be faithful in this step, in the places that you've called me to be. Use me in this relationship. Use me in this workplace. Use me in the school. Use me wherever I'm at. I want to be a living sacrifice. Because you're the one who provides. We caught it early in Genesis 22. Abraham told Isaac, the Lord will provide. Later on, God is faithful. 
and provides. Let me tell you, the Lord will provide. No matter how dark the despair is, let me be a living sacrifice for you, God. You're the one that I follow after. Let's pray. Jesus, as we consider the words from Scripture, as we consider the gods then and the gods of our age, I'm confident, Lord, for each person that the things we sacrifice to, that we try to, to be right with, come to mind. The gods that we follow after. Jesus, I pray that by your spirit we would be aware of what and how we're sacrificing and the cost of that. The cost to us personally, the cost the people around us. God, ultimately, the cost of living by your spirit. Lord, the words of John 10.10 just come to mind right now is, that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Lord, I know personally that I have felt that killing, that stealing, and that destruction. God, the enemy at work, and I know I'm not alone. But the rest of that verse says, you've come to give life and life to the full, or life abundant. And so God, may we be living sacrifices living an abundant life filled by your spirit daily. And again and again, returning to you, resting in you, trusting in you as the provider. Jesus, I pray for that person that may be here today or may be watching online that have never said yes to you. That just in this time that they would surrender their life to you that they would lay down before you and just say, God, I'm a sinner. I need saving from the sin. I've done things on my own. And Lord, today I confess you as my Savior. I believe, God, that you have forgiven me of thy sin. And Lord, that you desire a wholeness for me as I follow after you. God, for each person here that at one point have committed their life to following you and maybe have walked away or been distracted or bowing down at different altars, that today they would refocus on you, that they would confess that God, that idol, that sacrifice, and Lord, that they would once again return to following after you. Jesus, I pray that we would be a people filled with joy God, a people who walk empowered by your spirit, overflowing with the things that are of you. Jesus, thank you for resurrection, for it changes everything. God, thank you that you resurrect us. So Jesus, we love you. So grateful for who you are. Thankful that we walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' strong, powerful, and wonderful name. Amen.